Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning, beloved. How are you? Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. It's good to be back. I was away last week. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to Robert's message on 2 Samuel, that wonderful picture of God's steadfast kindness in the relationship between David and Jonathan and Mephibosheth. So if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. We're back in John. We're going to finish up John chapter 2 today. As you're finding John 2, let me say that I think you can summarize the Bible in many ways. One way you can summarize the Bible is to say the three words, God with us. In fact, the Bible opens up with this picture of God creating everything and then dwelling with his people and then because of sin there's a fracture between God and his people and then the rest of the Old Testament is God working his way back through his holiness and creating a people through whom the Son would come so that he would be reconciled to his people and then the Bible ends with God with his people dwelling with them forever. So one way of many ways of summarizing one of the great themes of the Bible is God's desire to dwell with his people. And I think ultimately that's what our text is this morning. It's about a well-known passage, a well-known story in the Gospels of Jesus cleansing the temple. And this is one of those stories that I think even if you have just a kind of sort of surface level familiarity with the Gospels, you're probably aware of this of this. This, this story, and I pray that today as we get into it, we'll see that ultimately it's more than about Jesus's righteous anger. It's more than about a correction of the poor aspects of worship of God's people during this time, but it's about dwelling with God through his son. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into this text. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for Caleb and Leah and their ministry across the world. Lord, I, I add my prayers with Springers. Go before them and use them. We, we're so thankful for this dear couple. Lord, I think of the psalm that says that we should open our mouths wide and you will fill it. Psalm 81.10. I pray that we would open our mouths this morning and you would fill it with your word. Make your people more like Jesus and turn unbelievers to faith in you. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm just going to read, starting in verses 13 through the end of the chapter. We're going to stop along the way and and think about it. But I've got two sort of headings to give you a kind of outline of this passage. First is that the first half of this passage is Jesus cleanses the temple. And then the second half is Jesus replaces the temple. So first, Jesus cleanses the temple. Let's look at at verse 13 of John chapter 2. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So this is the famous uh, time of Passover 
And remember, we looked at this a couple weeks ago when we looked at chapter one of Jesus, the Passover lamb, John the Baptist, his cousin, recognizes him in John chapter one, and he says, behold, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And we looked at how Jesus as this lamb is the fulfillment of all of this Old Testament symbolism, this Old Testament imagery of the sacrificial system that God instituted for his people, and this idea of the Passover and where that comes from is Exodus chapter 12, where God is, he is wrenching his people from Egyptian captivity, and he calls Moses to institute the people while they're still in captivity in Egypt to, to, take a, to set apart a lamb, a, a perfect lamb without blemish, and to slaughter that lamb and to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their hearts, and that night the angel of the Lord would pass over, and any household that had the blood of the lamb applied to it, to the doorpost, would be spared. But any household that did not, i.e. the Egyptians, their sons, their firstborn sons would be killed, and this became the Passover, which is a great symbol of the, of the blood of the true lamb, Jesus, who if we're under his blood, if we're covered, if we're trusting in his work, then the judgment of God will pass over us. And so now... In John chapter 2, the second half of this chapter, Jesus is really stepping out in more public ministry. A couple weeks ago, we covered the first half of the chapter where Jesus turned the water into wine, and that was a more of a kind of private miracle. With his, it was his first miracle, but it was a private miracle between his family and friends. Here, on this great holy day, in the middle of Jerusalem, in the temple where there would literally have been probably a million people gathered together to worship. Jews from, the, from the, 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 all over the Roman Empire at the time had come. Because if you remember, at the end of the Old Testament, the Jews were scattered. It was the diaspora. They were scattered because of the Babylonian and then Persian and now Roman captivity. And so several times a year for these major Jewish festivals and feasts, according to the Old Testament law, certainly for Passover, all of the Jews that lived miles and miles away from Jerusalem would come to Jerusalem for this high holy day of Passover and they were all gathered there. So there's probably a a million people here in Jerusalem at this time for this week of Passover. And Jesus picks this particular week to launch his public ministry. And so we see in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14, in the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, we might think, what's going on here? Well, just think about it. I think this is very practical. People, according to the Old Testament Mosaic Levitical law, had to offer sacrifices on the Passover. And if you're traveling from miles away, it would be very difficult to bring your animals with you. So really, this was kind of convenience. They're there. These people are kind of, you know, the, the entrepreneurial spirit of, of, of the first century of people springs up. And so there's these little stands where you can buy these animals, oxen, sheep, and pigeons, so that you personally didn't have to tote your own livestock with you on your long journey to Jerusalem. And because these people are coming from all of these different territories and pl- 
places. They didn't have the right type of money that would be accepted in Jerusalem. And so conveniently, there were exchange stands set up. And you can just sort of see this bustling activity where they are there in the temple. Now, they are in a place in the temple. And I think this is important for us to understand. They're in the outer courts of the temple, kind of where all the activity is, what is called the court of the Gentiles. So this is a place where even the Gentiles can sort of linger and be. And in God's design, God wants all of the nations to come to the temple because he wants to make a people so that through their holiness, all of the nations, the Gentiles, would be drawn to faith in God. And so the, what's happening is there's just kind of all these commerce. These, it's like the, 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 the fair, you know, all, all the, the people are just setting up their, their, their farmer's market, so to speak, in the middle of this great high holy week. Just, just notice here, it doesn't, you know, I, there, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but notice the subtle power of convenience, These people have come to worship God in the temple. And what seems to be the thing that is most sort of garnishing, that's garnering the, the attention, the energy, the inertia of the moment is the convenience of making worship easy for the people. And ultimately, it's taking their hearts away from true worship. And Jesus reacts to this, verses 15 and 16, and making a whip of cords. Now remember, there are probably a million people in Jerusalem. Certainly there were hundreds of people in the outer court of the Gentiles at this point where the stands are and where the money changers are, where all the animals are. Hundreds, maybe even thousands. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. There's a couple things I I, I want us to, to do here. First, I just want us to imagine the scene. It's easy to read those two verses and just kind of think of it happening very quickly. And we're sort of programmed by 30 minute episodes of shows where where, where things that take a long time in real life just sort of happen. You know, it's like, uh, what's the, the 20, um, remember the show 24, J- Jack Bauer, was that his name? And I'd always be amazed at how Jack Bauer could get from one side of Los Angeles to the other in three minutes. Now, I, I, I was born in Los Angeles. In fact, I was just in Los Angeles. It takes longer than a 30-minute episode to get from one side of LA to another. And let's just say it takes a bit to drive a bunch of animals who move slowly and stubbornly and stupidly and a bunch of people out of a big area, this is quite a scene. This, this, is, this, is, this has never happened before. And implicit in this, implicit in this is a kind of subtle acknowledgement of the crowd who certainly was confused and some people were certainly this is cutting into their bottom line but 
We read later in the Gospels how they will try and kill Jesus for the authority he takes. But here, one man has one whip and he's driving hundreds of people and hundreds of animals out of a large area, which is probably the size of a football field. That took time. And implicit in that is a kind of supernatural, divine authority that Jesus has. Can you imagine being there? Who is this man that is doing this? This is, we've never done it this way before. His disciples remembered then in verse 17 that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's a quote of the Old Testament in Psalm 69 where Jesus says, zeal for your house, or the psalmist says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And so what's going on here? What is Jesus so upset about? when he's cleansing the temple. I think what Jesus is so upset about is that they're missing the point. The subtle power, the tug of convenience, the the inertia of our self-centeredness that pushes our heads down from looking up to God has pushed them down. They are missing the whole point of gathering to worship God. Their heads aren't looking up. They're looking down. They're looking at what will make their life more convenient. It's become just a ritual. And the ritual has turned into an opportunity for commerce. And Jesus is incensed. And he, he takes matters into his own hands. And I just must say, just, just get a full biblical picture of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, yes, he is the one who is the kind and gentle Savior who calls children to himself, but he is also the ferocious king who drives people out of the temple for their lack of true worship. That's what Jonathan Edwards was talking about in his famous sermon, the, the diverse excellencies of Jesus. He's the most humble person that's ever lived, but he is the most glorious, ferocious person who has ever lived, and they come together in the person and work of Jesus. Just two observations before we move on to the rest of the second half of this where Jesus replaces the temple that I want us to think about is first, is this notice that cleansing starts in the church, or in this case, the Old Testament temple. Cleansing starts in the church. And what do I mean by that? We are tempted to, to think that the problem is always out there. Well, if this person would get elected, if we would just have prayer in schools, if this would, and all those things may have their relative importance, but notice that Jesus doesn't go to the Gentiles. He doesn't go to Rome and cleanse out the Senate in Rome. He goes to the temple of his people and he starts his cleansing there. God is always more concerned with the holiness of the church and the purity of his people than the correctness of the pagan culture around us. Because when the church is worshiping in holiness and earnestness, God will use it to impact the culture around it, not the other way around. We think that if the culture can get to some place, then we can be who we are called to be when in fact, biblically, the inverse is opposite. Secondly, just notice here, before we move on, is just notice how I think I take away from this that our selfishness hinders the gospel. 
the selfishness of these people, these money changers, these people setting up stands. It's a farmer's market. You're there to worship God. This is one of the high holy days where you, as an Old Testament first century Jew, would be acutely, should be acutely aware of the holiness of God and your need for a sacrifice to atone for your sin. And yet, they have turned this into a matter of convenience and commerce. They're doing business in the court of the Gentiles and and they, by their selfishness, are hindering the very thing that God wants that particular part of the temple to be for, which is to be a draw, an aroma to the nations so that the people, the Gentiles, would see the earnestness and the purity and the sincerity of God's people and they would be drawn to God. But instead, they are much more likely to be repelled from God because what's going on is just something you see in the farmer's market. That's why Jesus, in in another uh, telling of a cleansing of the temple at the end of Mark chapter 11, Jesus, when he is cleansing the temple on that occasion, he says that my house, the house of my father, shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Just one little thing. There's a a little bit of a theological discussion through the ages. Here in John, the cleansing of the temple is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple is at the end of Jesus' ministry. And some people have wondered uh, what's going on there. Were there two times when Jesus cleansed the temple, or did John just decide to move this one-time event up to the beginning of his gospel as a kind of picture of Jesus' ministry? The answer to that question, as far as I can tell, is, are you ready for it? I don't know. I think it's important, but I don't think it really impacts our understanding of this text. I think probably... There's two different events. John is recording this at the beginning of his ministry, and what the other gospel writers record is at the end of, of Jesus' ministry. And there's two different times of cleansing the temple. We can talk about that later. But our selfishness hinders the gospel. Friends, we have the privilege to worship God. We have the privilege to gather. We, we, have, the, we have the great duty and honor to gather with God's people and to worship him and we are so prone to make it about ourselves and take it for granted and friends this is not being this is not like the pastor getting mad at the friends we all do this we all do this one of the blessings of being American living in this time is the ingenuity and the creativity and the efficiency of our culture and that is a good gift from God but friends if we are going to be biblical people first we must always be keenly aware of how that can draw us away from true worship we are the pickiest we we are the most consumer-minded people civilization church culture in the history of the world we are we just come in and we just want things to be the way we want them and we get so subtly and internally frustrated with every little thing that doesn't go our way and what happens is we just end up sort of losing our steam. We lose our earnestness. No, we, we may not set up a stand in the foyer of Crosspoint selling Girl Scout cookies or whatever else we want to sell, but we do selfishly 
push our head down away from God into ourselves and our preferences, and we minimize the fruitfulness of the gathering of God's people. And our selfishness hinders the gospel. How does that land on you? How does that land on you? I, I'm telling you, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be real honest with you. I get frustrated sometimes. Sometimes it's a struggle for me to come and I get, I get disappointed in myself. I think my preaching is sometimes okay. Every now and again, I'll hit a double off the wall. Most of the time, it's a bloop single to write. And sometimes I get frustrated with you guys. You, you, you know, and, and, and so we just, but what, what I'm doing, what I'm doing when I'm like that is I'm, it's just about performance and efficiency and American consumerism. And it's this show we got to put on. And I repent of that because when I'm in that mode, my mind is here and not here. And we are so trained as Americans to make worshiping, gathering with God's people to lift our eyes so that the world around us would see the beauty of our risen king. We are so tempted to be lulled to sleep and make it about our enjoyment that we miss the whole point of worship, and I do too. And, and I, 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 I need... This, this reminder. I need my temple to be cleansed. And I think some of you do as well. So Jesus cleanses the temple. Secondly, Jesus replaces the temple. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, what a question to ask after he just went ballistic on the farmer's market. What's an, what an interesting question. What's behind it? It's almost, it's a, it's a kind of passive-aggressive power move. They were demanding some sort of miraculous display of his authority to do what he has just done, and in doing so, they completely missed the sign that he just did, which is the cleansing of the temple. It may not have been miraculous, although I think you could argue that one man driving out hundreds of people from a location about the size of a football field without getting stoned is in itself a kind of miracle. And he's just done it. He has just claimed an authority, a divinity, and they have the gall to ask him, what are you going to do to show us? What sign are you going to give us for these things? In their insecurity and in their passive aggressiveness, they're trying to domesticate God. God, what can you do? What can you do for us, Jesus? Show us a sign. Here's a quarter. Dance for us. And Jesus answered them in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What a response. And the Jews then said, it has taken, they're just perplexed. They do not have eyes to see. They say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? They obviously missed what Jesus was speaking of. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
So here we see that Jesus is clearly, he's, he's, he's painting a picture. He is looking at the physical temple, and he's saying that, that this is a kind of shadow, a picture, a symbol of my body. And he's obviously pointing to the cross. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead. So fast forward to the end of the gospel, to the end of the ministry and life of Jesus several years from now. When therefore he was, and this is like John sort of inserting his narrative into the scene here. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so they saw in full color what Jesus was saying here is that he's the true temple. This this whole Old Testament law, this whole sacrificial system, this whole place where God would meet with his people finds its fulfillment in me. This holy of holies, this place where you must come and get your sins atoned for through the sacrifice of the shadow of the blood of animals is now finally and fully revealed in Jesus who is the temple. So four truths as we end this consideration of this passage and then at the end of this message we have the privilege to see a brother baptized Let me give you just four truths that I think is going on here when Jesus is replacing the temple in his language. First, is that Jesus, Jesus himself is the temple where we meet God. Jesus is the place where we, where sinners who cannot be reconciled to God, he, through him, through his work, is the only place where the whole storyline of the Bible finds its consummation, where God is with his people, sin has alienated us from him and because of jesus we can now dwell with god forever colossians chapter 1 verse 21 and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him so notice that what's going on there in colossians 1 the writer paul is saying that we are reconciled to god through jesus we, are, we, we, we have fellowship with God again through what Jesus has done on the cross. We are all sinners. We're separated from God. Jesus is perfect. He lays down his life on the cross. He bears the wrath of God, the holiness of God, just like the animals in the Old Testament temple sacrifices would do temporarily. Jesus, as the book of Hebrews says, once and for all satisfies the holiness of God so that we can dwell with God again. Secondly, Jesus isn't just a place. He's not just a temple, but he is the great high priest of the temple. He's not only the place where we meet God, he's the one who it goes before us and sets up this meeting between us and God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Listen to verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Friends, there's no more beautiful passage in the Bible than this. 
Now think about this. Look, let's look. Jesus is not only the temple where we meet God. Jesus is the gracious, merciful high priest that goes between a holy God and sinners. We would all agree that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for our salvation. We agree that Jesus is a place where we meet God. But friends, get this in your heart. This is the very heart of the gospel. Is that this Jesus, this high and holy, this righteous Jesus who has come to judge the world is the merciful high priest that stands between, that goes between, that is sympathetic to us that doesn't stand far off, but he comes to us and he picks up the wounded leper on the side of the road and he brings us to the temple, which is himself, so that we can be reconciled to God. Jesus is not only the temple, he's not only the great high priest of the temple, he's the sacrifice in the temple. His body is the one. He is all of these goats and lambs and pigeons and oxen that they were selling. All of these things were Old Testament shadows that are pointing towards Jesus who is, as John said in John chapter 1, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So notice all of this beautiful imagery combining together in this one moment where Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. My body will be destroyed and I'll raise it up in three days. He's the place where we meet God. He's the one who brings us to that place. And he then offers himself as the sacrifice in that place. He's everything we need. We don't need anything else to be going on there when we are with Jesus there. He is all that we need. He's the temple, he's the sacrifice, he's the priest that brings us and mediates the sacrifice for us. And then finally, here's this beautiful, where this beautiful temple theme just starts to spread all throughout the New Testament. Finally, fourthly, salvation unites us to Jesus, and this is amazing. Now, remember, Jesus is the temple, Jesus is the high priest of the temple. Jesus is the sacrifice of the temple. And then in salvation, when he saves us, when his sacrifice is given to us and we become reconciled to him, now we are part of his temple. We become part of this. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 that Springer read for us earlier says. Verse 20, speaking of the church, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we together are part of this structure of the body of Christ. We grow together. We are in Him. In Him, verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Jesus, the temple... Jesus, the high priest who brings us to the temple, Jesus, the sacrifice of the temple, unites us to himself and we become part of this temple. And here's just a little a wonderful exercise for you to do in the coming days or weeks. Go through the New Testament, in particular places like Ephesians and Colossians, and look at all the times that Paul uses the phrase in him or in Christ. This beautiful doctrine of union with Christ, that you are joined, we are joined by Jesus' work. We are united, we are reconciled with him, and we meet with God. So that means that the 
truest thing about you, dear brother or sister, if you are a believer in Jesus, is that you are united to Christ and nothing, as we'll read when we get to John 10, can snatch you from his hand. And if you are united to Christ, God is so radically committed to you coming all the way home towards the beautification of his temple that any sin or any pain or anything done to you, he promises to continue the good work of sanctification in you so that you will overcome that thing. And that's the guarantee of being part of this temple where we are dwelling together with God by the Spirit. And John concludes with this last three verses. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, listen to this, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now what's going on in these last three verses? Why put this on the end of this story of Jesus cleansing the temple? I think it's a a kind of point that John is making at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that we'll see actually all throughout the book of John is that many people sort of temporarily followed Jesus for a time because they were attracted to his power or his miracles. In fact, when we get to John 6, there's this amazing chapter where Jesus feeds the multitudes and walks on water and then he preaches a hard sermon and people walk away from him. Can you imagine that? That Jesus, who has just done these miraculous things, just because he delivers hard truth, people walk away from him. And we see this even today. People are attracted to Jesus. They're attracted to the church. They're attracted to Christianity, sometimes merely for what it can do for them. But when that is the case, they are displaying, and eventually they fall away. When they do that, they're displaying that they were never truly following Jesus truly. They were following something that they thought could improve their lives. And Jesus withdraws from that. He holds back from that. He's not going to give himself over so that these people would follow him falsely. He wants true faith that follows him because we need to be reconciled to God, not because we need to improve our social status or our life or see a sign, but because we, as sinners who need a sacrifice, need to be reconciled to God. And we can only do that in the temple, the holy place, which is Jesus. And we can only do that through the mediation of a priest who's holy, who doesn't need his own sins atoned for, but he's a perfect priest, and that's Jesus. And we need that through something more than just animal sacrifice or our good works. We need it through the blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus. We need our sins atoned for because of what Jesus has done to satisfy the wrath of God against our rebellion. And when we do that, we're united to Him. And now, we can worship God. We can be part of this temple where we come in and we put our preferences down and we put in our petty little 
our little irritable natures down and we, we're gracious with one another. And we have our head on a swivel and we look for one another and we don't rush in and rush out. And when somebody that we notice is just not quite there yet, that we just, our heart isn't all of a sudden rising up in judgment towards that person. Our heart is filled with compassion for that person because we know that God determines to use our worship to be a kind of aroma to the people around us because He wants to use us to cause everybody around us to look up and see Jesus as well. And it transforms. It transforms our worship. And when, it, when a church and when... When a group of people see this and they fight for this imperfectly, it, it just, it, beautiful things happen. Beautiful things happen. I, I end with this before we baptize this dear brother. I, I, I think of a meal. I think of meeting together as a meal. And one of my concerns, I think, about just my own heart and American church culture, maybe even a little bit here in our church, is that when we just get so used to doing things, striving for excellence, which is a good thing to do. I'm not... I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we just want, we want a kind of gourmet meal all the time in spiritual things. But it would be akin to gathering together as a family, and we're just always sort of judging mama's cooking. Chicken's a little rubbery, mama. Mm. Green beans were a little, little stiff. Baked potato wasn't quite soft enough in the middle. I mean, who does that at the dinner table with their mother? I mean, you'd get smacked if you lived if you grew up in my house. And now, look, m- Mama can cook, but every now and again, Mama, you know, Mama, 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 Mama can hit a bloop single to ride every now and again too. Now, but the power, the beauty of of the family meal is not the flavor necessarily of the chicken or the rightness of the mashed potatoes, as important as those things are. But the, the substance is the people, the family coming together to love and serve one another. And in the context of our lives as believers in Jesus, to lift up our eyes together and to grow into a holy temple and to worship God to whom we've been reconciled. What a privilege! What a privilege! But we're Americans and we're grumpy and we're perfectionists and we're irritable and we demand things that we prefer. Give it to me like I want it. Rather than coming together with hearts full, humbled by the reconciling work of our high priest, with our hearts full of mercy and compassion, clearing out the court of the Gentiles from our preferences and our money changing and our, and our, our conveniences, saying, come, come, come to the holy of holies, come to the table, come and feast with me and be reconciled to God. That's what Sunday morning should be every Sunday morning. God help us. Let's do that better. Let's do that better. Let me pray. Lord, um, forgive me. I'm in the very middle. The crosshairs of this are trained on my heart right now. Um, I, 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 I am the very embodiment, oftentimes, 
of the things that I think this text is critiquing. Cleanse this temple, Lord. Cleanse me, cleanse me. Help me, help me be a, a better, more compassionate, more gentle, more humble, more gracious, more otherly focused believer. Lift my eyes from myself and fix them on Jesus. I need my temple to be cleansed afresh. And Lord, if, if that is the need of anybody in this room, Lord, do, do it for them as well, I pray. In Jesus' name.